Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 16th, 2015. This is episode 1520 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday. That means it's time for your emails to me sent to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember to put TSPC. Again, TSPC in the subject line when you send me any emails. If you do that, I'll be sure that I find them and they don't end up in the spam box. You might want to add something to it like article for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that uh, to kind of give me an idea of what it is as I'm scanning my emails and going through them. Since there's so many a day, I can't deeply read all emails. So everything you do to help me understand what I'm looking at as quick as possible helps my screening process and gets you more likely to be on the air. On that note, if you make your point or give me your question or whatever it is in one sentence or less, followed by the details with a space in between them instead of jumble of text, it's also more likely that I'll be able to use your call on the air. Anyway, uh, I just want to uh, let you guys know that this is going to be a great Monday show. I've got some great topics that were sent in from you guys and some stuff on critical thinking. We're going to go deep into critical thinking today more more. I, I think it's probably the best survival skill that I can teach you is, is critical thinking. There's so many uh, sites and shows and YouTube channels that teach, let's say, wilderness survival skills or something like that. But the, the, the biggest skill that's been lost in this nation is, is critical thinking. We have become the most easily led society of idiotic drones in the history of the world at a time at a time when we should be among the most intelligent people that have ever existed. The amount of information that's available to us, the amount of truth that's available to us, far exceeds any time in history, yet most of us are too lazy to go out and get it. Uh, I'll talk about that and many other things today. But everything we talk about today is going to come from that angle. How do we decipher information? How do we make decisions? How do we have conversations without each other without going, You're stupid! This is dumb! Uh, as I see grown adults so often drop down into on social media platforms, etc. today. Now, before I get into all that good stuff, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. You know, critical thinking is a skill that's being lost in America, but hard hand skills are being lost as well. Learning to do something simple like complete a knife kit, how to do final fit and finishing, sharpening, uh, you know, setting bolsters, etc., is a really great way to start developing those hard skills. It's a great father-son or father-daughter or mother-son, mother-daughter project you can do. Hey, how about you guys that are in scouting? What about doing a whole scout group, uh, doing a knife-making class in your, in your scout group and seeing what the scouts come up with? It's really affordable. It doesn't cost that much money to get a decent kit and some unique handle material and make a knife from a knifekit.com kit. Check them out today, and if you're not sure what you need to do, once you get everything, they have books and DVDs. You can give them a call. They'll help you. They have great customer service. You can send them an email, and uh, they do do a discount for members of the support brigade, so check that out as well. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company I could ever endorse. I subscribed to Backwoods Home first in 1994. It is 2015. I'm still a subscriber. I don't think I need to say anything more today about that. When you subscribe to a magazine for 21 years consistently, um, that, that says it all. And I don't have any company 
that I've had a relationship with for more than 20 years, not a single one, other than, I guess, State Farm Auto Insurance, just because switching is not really worth doing after a certain amount of time. Uh, that's probably the other one. That's not necessarily an endorsement for State Farm. That's just an, an acknowledgement. That's probably the only other company that I've had a relationship with that long. I guess AT&T, because I, uh, I still have rollover minutes from when they were singular. That's still probably not 20 years. Uh, in fact, I can guarantee it's not 20 years. So, hey, guys, what can I say? Backwoods Home Magazine, um, it's a lifelong relationship that I've had with them as a subscriber. You subscribe, start reading their material, you'll see why, uh, and maybe you'll become a long-term subscriber to their magazine as well. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Uh, next up, let us take a look at the year 1520. I have the Stockholm Bloodbath. Or why killing off the rebel leadership hardly ever works. For one, I have the revolt of the communities of Castile. For a second one, and I have on the freedom of a Christian. For the third, I'm going to read on the freedom of a Christian. Uh, you can read the other two, which are awesome segments today from Alex Strug at tspwiki.com. The year 1520, of course, there's a link in the show notes as always. On the freedom of a Christian, the Reverend Father Martin Luther is excommunicated this year after writing three scathing rebukes of the Catholic Church and Pope Leo in particular. All of these are in print, making the rounds in public. The third pamphlet contends that a Christian is born a free lord and a dutiful ser as both a free lord and a dutiful servant. Thus Christians are no longer compelled to follow God's law, but freely do so. To explain what he means takes many words, so follow the link below and read the full text. But one point he is making is that one is not saved by works alone. Thus, compelling someone to perform a ritual to rid oneself of sin, first representing one's heart, uh, negates the ritual. In other words, sprinkling a little holy water on an evil person does not make him holy. Accepting money as if it were a sin sacrifice to the temple does not absolve one of sin without corresponding change of heart. My take by Alex Shrug, while Martin Luther implies that the state has no business in the conscience of the individual in his faith in God, people will continue to think of the state as the embodiment of God's will right into the 20th century and beyond. Even with the modern secular state, if you substitute God for government, the rhetoric sounds like preaching from any pulpit. Help the poor, the sick, and the hungry. You are a steward of the earth, the waters, the plants, and the animals. Nag, nag, nag. I'll take that from God but not from government. But see, that's actually the historical role of government. If you go back far enough in time, every government sat itself in place of God. Every government. And governments today have come up with better marketing and have covered the, 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 the steel hand of armor with a velvet glove, but it's still a steel hand underneath there. But... Why do you think that we referred to people in the past that were our government as lords? In fact, many members in, in many governments were actually flat out stated that they were gods. They were God's son here on earth sent to rule us. This pertains in modern day. Pertains even in the modern day. I won't go into why, but you can figure it out for yourself if you want to. But, And I mean a direct pertain. But the indirect is actually more interesting because it applies to more people in the world. Government has set itself up as the judge 
of right and wrong and in of itself has stated we can do no wrong. We are so good that we can police ourselves. My take by Jack Spirico. Just something to consider the next time you advocate for more government or another law. I'm not saying that we should have no government and no law. That would be an ideal state. I want to actually, before I move on, I want to actually talk about what anarchist means. Most people don't know. They have not a foggiest idea what modern anarchistic philosophy is. So I want to tell you, just in case you, you don't know, the modern anarchist is not, let's just get rid of all government tomorrow because that would be great. No. The modern anarchist, if he's logical and, and, and rational, and most are, um, understands that we have a system of dependence and we have a system where, unfortunately, we've been molded into a society that, that actually desires, wants, craves the power of a state. And in some instances, we need the power of a state for now. That a perfect society would be one in which there is no state. Now, that doesn't mean that if there was no state, society would become perfect. No, that a perfect society would be a society in which there is no need for a state. Okay, That is perfection. That is the goal. And only by setting that goal can you ever hope to end up with the most minarchist government you can have. No matter how big that government might be. Maybe it's a government that we look at and say, I wouldn't call that a minarchist government. I'd call that a very large government. But at any given point in time, I think most of us, with a brain, would agree that the smallest, least powerful government possible to protect individual liberties and to assure the peace and to assure individual rights like private property, etc., that's possible should be what we have. That it should be no bigger than that. Whatever's necessary to ensure that people are safe and secure in their homes, safe and secure in their possessions and their property, and able to live happy, productive lives. That anything beyond that is unnecessary intrusion on individual, personal, and collective liberties. Okay, The anarchist is basically stating that only by having the goal of perfection, no state, can we ever hope to even get close to that? That's why I call myself a minarchist in practice and an anarchist in theory. And I think that's something that maybe people could learn from. And maybe we should stop throwing around words like anarchist without actually knowing what they mean, you know, on our thoughts of critical thinking today. On that, before I get into the first one, which is going to go deep into critical thinking and, and make people hopefully think, I did want to let you guys know that I am running an MSB sale today, uh, and I'm running it all week long until Sunday, uh, at the end of the week, Sunday midnight central time, uh, $20 off the MSB, so you get your first year for 30 bucks. there's a post on the blog today called Warm Up with a great sale price on the MSB, and uh, it, it, the discount code is COLD, C-O-L-D, all lowercase, so you put that in when you go to sign up online, you get your first year for 30 bucks. you want to do it by the mail-in form, you just write it on there and, and drop your price down, or if you do silver, it explains what we do there. But I want to let you guys know, just since it's like cold out, but we're all thinking about spring, just the stuff I pointed out in the post that you get discounts on that applies to like all the planting and, and homesteading stuff that you'll be doing in the spring in a, you know, a month, month and a half from now. Victory Seed Company, all members get 10% off your orders there. Terroir Seeds, 10% off. Soil Cube, 20% off a of Soil Cube. The Self-Sufficient Life website gives you 50% off all their eBooks. 
High Mowing Seeds gives you 5% off all orders. They've been doing free shipping, and they decided to do that for everybody. So you get free shipping from High Mowing and 5% off. I just finally got the MSB updated for them today. Uh, Progress Earth gives you 10% off. Luke Callahan's Guide to the Microgreen Business. That's a business you can start anytime, but it's, it's agricultural in general. Uh, 50% off. And uh, Progressive Gardens, which makes the Vortex Brewer, etc., 10% off all orders. That's just that kind of planting, gardening, homesteading. Oh, and Bob Wells Nursery, 10% off all orders. So if you're looking at ordering trees and seeds and stuff like this, it's almost inconceivable if you're doing uh, any kind of major homesteading activities that you just from those discounts alone, you're not going to come up with you know 20 to 30 bucks off and, and be at break even or only 10 bucks to join. Uh, for stuff you're going to buy anyway, just for that. That's how I try to build the MSB. And so if you've ever been on the fence about, do I do this or not? Hey, 30 bucks. You know what you, you get when you take the 30 bucks and you figure out what your cost per episode is? 7.32 cents an episode to join this time of year. So anyway, do consider joining the MSB if you haven't before. Anyway, uh, with that, I'd like to get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, my lead story for you guys today is not meant to be taken seriously, but is make you meant to be uh, to be to make you think seriously. I guess would be the way to look at this. At least I don't consider it meant to be taken literally, because I don't think any doctor on planet Earth would sign this. And I, I've heard some objections to it, like no business owner would ever sign such a waiver. Um, but my question would be, well, what version of it would somebody be willing to sign? How how much do we have to take off it before somebody will be willing to, to sign it? And this is about vaccines, by the way. And uh, it's an article that says, want to vaccinate my child? No problem. Just sign this form. And I'm not going to read the article, but I'm going to read a little bit of the form to give you a idea of where it is. And I'm just going to say blank whenever there's a blank that needs to be filled in to try to make this easy. Physician's warranty of vaccine safety. Physician name and degree, blank, blank. I'm a physician licensed to practice medicine in the state province of blank. My state province license number is blank. My DEA number is blank. My medical specialty is blank. I have a thorough understanding of the risk and benefits of all medications that I prescribe for or administer to my patients. In the case of patients named blank, aged blank, whom I have examined, I find that certain risk factors exist that justify the recommended vaccinations. The following is a list of said risk factors and vaccinations that will protect against them. Risk factor blank, vaccination blank, risk factor blank, vaccination blank. You get the hint. There's a few places for that. I am aware that vaccines may contain the following chemicals. Uh, experts, preservatives, and fillers. And I'm going to read this list to you because I think it'd be nice to know what, what what's in vaccines that everybody's so worried about? Aluminum hydroxide, aluminum phosphate, ammonium sulfate, amphoritin B, animal tissues including pig blood, horse blood, rabbit brain, arginine hydrochloride, dog kidney, monkey kidney, dialblastic potassium phosphate, chick embryo, chicken egg, duck egg, calf bovine serum, beta prophylactone, fetal bovine serum, formaldehyde formula, and gelatin, uh, gentamicin sulfate, glycerol, human diploid cells originating from aborted human fetal tissues, hydrocortisone, hydrolyzed gelatin, mercury thermosol, monosodium glutinate, monobasic potassium phosphate, nemesin, nemesin sulfate, uh, nylphenol exolate, ethylate, nylphenol exolate, octophenol exolate, 
oxytonol 10, phenyl red indicator, phenyl, phenylox ethanol, which is antifreeze, uh, antifreeze, yes, you heard that right, potassium chloride, potassium disulfate, potassium monosulfate, polymyosin B, polysorbate 20, polysorbate 80, porcine, which is pig pancreatic hydral state of casein, whatever the hell that is, residual MRC5 proteins, sodium deoxychelate, sorbitol, thermosol, tributyl phosphate, barrow cells, a continuous line of monkey kidney cells, and washed sheep red blood. And hereby warrant these ingredients are safe for injection into the body of my patient. I have research reports to the contrary, such as reports that mercury thermosol causes severe neurological and immunological damage and find that they are not credible. I am aware some vaccines have been found to have been contaminated with similar and virus 40, SV40, and that SV40 is causally linked by some researchers to non-Hodgkin's lymphomas and mesothemiomas in humans as well. As in experimental animals, I hereby warrant that the vaccines I employ in my practice do not contain SV40 or any other live viruses. Alternately, I hereby warrant that said SV40 virus or other viruses pose no substantive risk to my patient. I hereby warrant that the vaccines I am recommending for the care of patients named blank do not contain any tissues from aborted human babies, also known as fetuses. In order to protect my patient's well-being, I have taken the following steps to guarantee the vaccines that I will use will contain no damaging contaminants. Steps taken blank, 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 blank. Okay, you can read the rest of this if you want to. It, up till there, I don't actually have a problem with asking a doctor to sign it. It gets into a point where this legally, um, eliminates so much protection under the law for a doctor that, that no business owner in their right mind would actually sign it, no matter what they did. And that is a legitimate objection that some people have posed to this. But that's because you're taking this completely seriously instead of understanding the effing point, okay? And the effing point is that nobody's responsible at all, ever, when some kid gets a vaccination and ends up with something like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Or ends up some way screwed up for the rest of their life. Even when you can say, yeah, the vaccine did it. There's a vaccine court where the government pays the bill for the pharmaceutical manufacturer if you win. And by the way, you have to sue the government in government court. Good luck with that. There's a very few people that have ever gotten any satisfaction out of that. And by the way, once my kids screwed up, I don't have any satisfaction. I just have enough money to pay for their problems. Now, I want to try to make a point here for you, okay? And I want you, if you are angry with me right now, to suspend your anger because you can't have a logical discussion when you're angry. And if you're afraid that if somebody realizes this, they won't vaccine and they're going to get my... I want you to suspend fear and anger because you can't have a logical discussion with fear and anger present. It's impossible, which is why the media continues to hold you in a state of fear and anger. And I want you to simply ask yourself, if... That list of ingredients is real, and you'll have to trust me when I tell you that it is. And if we left off the accentuated parts of the waiver, and we just asked a physician to sign this form, and none would, and most wouldn't, I would imagine, 
then are the people that have concerns about vaccinations and say, hey, I'm not sure about this, are they really nuts? Shouldn't somebody be responsible for the adverse reactions that we have here? when, When we hear they're perfectly safe and we just ignore the side effects, those of you that are upset with me, have you actually used the link that I provided several episodes ago to a government website that provides the vaccine inserts and read what the manufacturers say the side effects are? And you probably haven't if you're still angry with me. My point is only that we need to think before we react. And we actually need to examine the other side's case, even if we don't like it. We have to actually realize that the other person might actually be thinking. They might not just be some crazy conspiracy nut job hiding in a basement. And, and what's interesting to me is I've been viscerally attacked as being an anti-science anti-vaxxer. When I have said over and over and over again, I actually think vaccines, by and large, are worth the risk, and it makes sense to vaccinate. But I have a problem with shoving 26 vaccines into a child before its 18-month birthday. Okay, Just saying, that just seems a little excessive to me. And given that the vaccines come with warning labels that clearly state some very severe adverse reactions can occur, that it simply makes sense to space these vaccinations out because we live in a clean, healthy society, by and large, on the stance of the vaccine world, right? I don't think we're healthy because we're eating all kinds of garbage food and all, but overall, we have pretty decent quality of life and cleanliness and a lack of spread of disease in this country. So we have time to let our children be inoculated over a a much more reasonable period of time, in my opinion. And further, that if we choose to do this and our child does have a reaction, and we gave vaccine A when that reaction occurred, we know which vaccine they've reacted to. And since many of these ingredients can cause a reaction that I just read to you, and many of them are common in multiple vaccines, if the reaction is instead of to the actual the, the attenuated or dead virus or whatever in that individual vaccine, if it is to something that's in there that's common to many, the reaction would be mitigated because there's less of it. I don't see that as anti-science. I would like some, I'll tell you what, I would publicly debate under the international rules of debate with a third-party moderator, okay, Anybody that wanted to, that a position that I've just outlined is in any way anti-scientific. I, I, and I'll tell you what, you want to step up and do it, I'll set it up. We'll do it in a live uh, video cast or something like that, and I will eviscerate you. I will happily eviscerate anybody that wants to try to make the case that there's anything irrational or illogical about the case. That I, but I'm an anti-science, anti-vaxxer. But the bigger issue here, And I want to tell you guys what I posted on Facebook today. Because this is the bigger issue. This is not about vaccines. This is what I keep trying to get across to you guys. This is about fear and hype out of the media. And those of you that listen to the show regularly will know that when when I read what I'm about to read, that everything I say and claim that I've said is true. So here's what I wrote on Facebook today. On February 4th, exactly 13 days ago, I posted the following. Quote, 
So in two weeks, when the media stops hyping measles and moves on to the next bowl of bullshit soup, will all of you people freaking out about it admit you were acting like fools? Or will you be freaking out about the most recent bowl of Mierda de Toro de Jure pound Remember Ebola? Over the past few weeks, I have tried to make the point that the media was simply hyping measles. Of course, I'm labeled as an anti-science anti-vaxxer for this. Such labeling, in spite of the fact that my positions on vaccine are largely pro-vaccine, do them, space them out more than the current schedule to monitor for side effects that are possible because the makers of the vaccine say they are possible, clearly demonstrates that people who want to believe in fear and act in anger can't have a logical discussion. Now here's the interesting thing. The three largest news sites out there are likely MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN. Just checked, and you know what? The front page of MSNBC and CNN, zero mention of measles. Fox News, which I've spelled the insulting way, F-A-U-X, Fox News, has one tiny story in the bottom of the fold at the last place in their stories under latest news. Now, a few days after I made this original post here on Facebook, and again, was called anti-science for doing so, I went on the air and stated, quote, not only in two weeks will all this hype about measles end, but they are going to start a new cycle of ISIS is going to get you, end quote. Now, kitties, guess what you see as the top stories on all three major networks? And there's big pictures of scary guys in masks on all three major networks today. I have also heard several right-wing radio jocks make comments like, we need a president like King Abdullah of Jordan. Really? I have also noticed a lot of you guys spreading memes about the king. Really? You want a king here? Again, this isn't about vaccines or even ISIS. It is about how easily led the U.S. is by the news media, how hype instills fear and anger, and hence keeps us all fighting each other while those in power rape our nation and commit violence in our names. But let me just ask, as per my original post, now that two weeks has passed and the media has stopped hyping measles and moved on to the next bowl of bullshit soup, will all of you people who were freaking out about it admit you were acting like fools? Or are you going to continue freaking about freaking out about the most recent bowl of Mierda de Toro de Jure? If you happen to doubt for any reason I made the original post 13 days ago exactly, you can see this link. And then I have a one of those your e-cards, uh, little card template things there. And there's a girl with a spoon in her mouth. And it says, mmm, yes, tastes like grade A bullshit to me. That was awesome to be able to find that little card. Now, this is not really a dun-dun-dun, Jack was right post, okay? It comes off like that, I know, but you, you, if you're going to stand and say, this is what's going to happen, and this is how you're being led, then you have to go back and prove it. If you don't go back and prove it, you're like all these people that are predictions people, whose predictions come true eight years later, and they say, oh, I said that was going to happen, and you're full of crap. You either stand by what you say, or you don't. Now, there's something I want to tell you that I don't want to come off the wrong way, before I move on here, just to drive the point home. And it's not at all anti-Muslim or anti-Middle East or anti-anything. It's just a fact. And I want you to hear this. And I want you to take this in and think about this. Most of the people posting memes about King Abdullah of Jordan 
and saying what a great guy he is. And he's talk radio jocks. I, 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 I kid you not, guys. I had to drive the vehicle a bit this week, so I usually turn talk radio on to see what these morons are talking about. And I heard three different talk radio hosts make comments like, we need a president like that. Where do I vote for this guy? One guy was interviewing somebody. I don't remember who, but he was running for office. He said, would you consider him as your running mate? Okay? I want most of you that are like, oh, yeah, we got King Abdullah, right? Okay are very big on the anti-Islamic, radical Muslim extremists. Why don't we call them what they are? Okay, I'm just saying, this is the profile page from Jordan's website about His Majesty, King Abdullah II, the 41st generation direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, His Majesty King Abdullah II assumed his constitutional powers as monarch on 7 February 1999, following the leadership legacy of his father, the late King Hussein. Okay, um, I just bet if this guy didn't happen to drop bombs on other Arabic guys that we like less right now, at any given time, that most of the people holding this guy up as an example of what we need as a president in this country were told this is a great guy and then told what his own profile on his own website said. And I said, I really like this guy. I think we need someone like him here. You would attack me. You would attack me. It's being crazy and we don't need a monarch and what is this uh, Abdullah stuff and uh, Prophet Muhammad descendant. What, what's wrong with you? That's anti-American. It's all in context, folks. If it's not the guy you'd want running your country today, then it's probably not the guy you'd want running your country tomorrow, unless you know he massively changes. See, but we have to think rationally here. And it's something we just apparently do not wish to do. People prefer a comforting lie to an inconvenient truth, to an uncomfortable truth. And the lie is everybody sucks but us, Everybody's out to get us, but we're stronger and we can kick everybody's ass. In the end, that is the summation of what you're told. And anything that goes wrong in your life, or even the, 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 anything that creates the potential for anything to go wrong in your life is somebody else's fault. And everything would just be super if everybody would get on the same plan and do exactly what the government says. Sounds like religion. To me, it sounds like a religion to me. And I have a religious question for later that I'll answer in a way that many people wouldn't expect, I think. And But I'm going to leave that with you right now. That sounds like a religion. The state tells you you're good. You're one of the chosen. Okay? Sound familiar to anybody but me? And everything's great except for those who are rebellious in your society and won't go along with the way things are supposed to be. They don't salute the flag right. They don't stand up when the anthem plays. It's all their fault. They don't participate in the mass collective rituals the way that everybody else is supposed to be. They don't follow the edicts and orders of the state to comply with things like vaccinating their children. The vaccine works perfectly. It's completely safe. Nobody's responsible for it if anything goes wrong, though. And by the way, if they don't vaccinate their kids, your kids could get sick, even though you got the vaccination that we're telling you works. Because we need to have a good, strong herd immunity. And it's their fault that the herd is being put at risk. And that's the actual term they use. Okay? Because if they would just follow our rituals and follow our commandments, 
everything would be great. And everybody, everywhere else in the world wants to be like us. Well, those of us that follow the rituals. Now, they could be, but they can't because we're so special. So we're blessed. And you should thank God that you live here every day because it's better than every place else except for those bad people that keep messing it up. And we need to force them to comply. America! Some of you know where that's from. Let's go ahead and take a different one. The next one is a story that comes in from uh, Z. Let's call him Z. It's his first initial. I don't give people's last name out unless they indicate that they want me to. And I got this from a lot of you guys. And I'm probably going to have a, a totally different um, take on this than, than most of you would expect from me. Gene-altered Apple gets U.S. approval. The government on Friday approved the commercial planting of a genetically engineered apple that are resistant to turning brown when sliced or bruised. The developer, Okakan Specialty Fruits, says it believes the non-browning feature will be popular with both consumers and food service companies because it will make sliced apples more appealing. The feature could also reduce the number of apples discarded because of bruising. But many executives in the apple industry say they worry that the biotech apples, while safe to eat, will face opposition from some consumers, possibly tainting the wholesome image of the fruit that reportedly keeps the doctor away. They are also concerned it could hurt exports to the countries that do not like genetically modified foods. See? They were back to this again. If everybody would just fall in line, we could all have these super-duper apples that don't turn brown. But these stupid people that dissent, that fail to follow the wisdom of the government and the corporation apparatus that we call the oligarchy in this country, they ruin it for everybody. That's the message here. Now, let me... That, so that obviously I have a problem with. The next thing is, I said years ago, when I started the show back in 2008, and I got educated and cured my ignorance about GMOs and what they were GMOing things to do and realized it was a problem. And I said, they'll never stop. They'll genetically modify anything and everything that they can. And I am more concerned about what they modify the food to do than the fact that they modify the food at all. In other words, one of my biggest concerns is we are feeding people tons of soy in this country, tons of cotton, Uh, and you don't eat cotton, you cottonseed oil, folks. Check the labels. And we are spraying it directly with glyphosate, Roundup. And that that's bad shit you shouldn't be putting in your body. Just blunt. Anybody with a brain would know you don't want to eat this stuff. And that when you spray a plant with it, it literally takes it up into its internal components. You can't wash it off. You can't get it off. It, it becomes part of it. And that we're feeding people these, these herbicides, which have just disastrous effects in, in many studies that have been done on what do they actually do. What do they do to kidneys and other internal organs and what effect do they have on reproductive rates and, and what have you. And if you think it's safe, I invite you to go out to the to Home Depot or Lowe's, go find yourself some Roundup, drink a shot glass of it. Do it once a week. Just see how it works out, you know? Well, it's diluted. Okay, dilute it to application strength. And, and eat a quarter teaspoon a month if you think it's safe. Because I bet you you're getting more than that if you're eating a diet heavy in, 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 in cottonseed oil and soy meal and soy oil, etc. And then, you know, we have these other herbicides that are being sprayed on other modified things like corn and, and what have you. And that's my bigger problem. So actually my, my concern for this specific modification is relatively minor. I don't 
think that in general, the modification of the gene in a, a, a plant in of itself represents a major risk to those who consume it. Now, it might represent a major risk to the, the natural order of things. Because, see, there's these things called bees. And they don't listen to the state either. Right? They fly around and they, and, and all types of pollinating insects, they, they land in flowers and then they go to other flowers and they transmit the genetic makeup of one to another. And then these, these plants have the audacity to reproduce themselves. You know, sometimes apples get eaten by a horse and the horse shits out a seed and a tree grows somewhere and it starts to propagate itself. I mean, th so there's a concern there, but this one's relatively minor. Right? I, I don't think if you ate this apple, you're going to have a higher risk of cancer or whatever. Now, when we modify it so it can be sprayed with something we can't spray it with right now, and you're eating that, then I have a bigger concern. But here's my, my larger concern here. Why? Why do we need to do this? So the apple won't turn brown? Every housewife from at least the 70s back knew that when you cut certain fruits, like apples that misting them with a little bit of lemon juice, absorbic acid, reduces the time it takes for them to brown. And, by the way, there are multiple natural apples that have heavy resistance to bruising and browning. And some of them are really good-tasting heirloom apples that we don't grow anymore because, well, even though they have that resistance, they don't quite have a perfectly round, shiny you know, packaging that we want to sell as apples today. So but what that means is that the genetic ability to resist browning exists in apples, and with selective breeding, we could be doing this without genetic modification. So we're even going to shortcut the things that are only superficial in nature that we don't need to shortcut, but we're going to do it anyway. So what won't they do? So this apple doesn't terrify me. I'm not going to run, oh my God! It's also the case that This will be something that's done with, you know, non-organic fruit. Uh, you're not going to see your local growers growing these apples and things like this, most likely. So since I know where my apples come from and I've got about 200 apple trees in my backyard, well, you know, in a few years they'll start producing and I won't worry about this because I can do this for myself. And the, the inherent risk of like, somebody's bee landing on one of these trees, going to my tree and doing it the way it cross-pollinates corn and all, I, 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 this is in, in of itself not that big a deal. Not a big a deal. The larger implications, though, are that they're never going to stop. And remember, every time they do this, somebody owns the life form and has a potential claim on what happens if that life form cross-pollinates what you're doing. So what if I'm one of these crazy people that doesn't follow the rules and only plants grafted trees? that makes your life miserable, and I'm putting you at risk because I actually plant trees from seed. And one day I plant this seed in the ground from one of my apple trees. And it grows up into a whip, and I graft that whip onto another tree, and I pull an apple off, and I go, this is an awesome apple. And one of these people has some sort of genetic line testing done, It claims rights to my intellectual property that I developed on my property because somewhere along the way, the pollen from their thing that I never wanted in mind got there. You think it can't happen? Monsanto has successfully sued people for the same thing happening with soybeans. So there's legal precedent for it. And the Canadian court 
that originally sided with Monsanto said it did not matter how the genetic material ended up on the defendant's property, only that it did. Now, some people say that that gentleman, who's named Percy Smizer, is a liar and a thief, and he was just this evil guy that was out to get Monsanto and make them look bad and what have you, and... You know, you can tell because he lost, and that's what Monsanto's website says. And the last update on Monsanto's website about Percy Schmeiser slanders him and talks about how he lost his case in court multiple times. You know what it doesn't talk about? The fact that in follow-up court hearings, Monsanto lost, had to pay him. They just leave that off. That's how these companies operate. So my concern is the patenting and ownership of a life form that's artificially created in a Petri dish, and who knows what we're going to end up with at the end of the day. It's not that this one in and of itself presents any individual risk, but the propensity to do this with no serious concern about the long-term consequences is a bad thing. And I think that is a critical analysis, a logical thought process, It's not anti-science. I'm not saying we shouldn't modify anything. But I'm just saying maybe we should think about it before we do. And maybe we should think about doing something from a legalistic standpoint that says that if your pollen gets into my flower, you own the result. I'm not cool with that. I don't think most logical people would be. Let's continue on this um, rational thought process analysis and actually figuring stuff out. For ourselves, instead of being told what to think and being told that you're wrong, uh, if you if you just disagree in the slightest. Um, so here we go. This is an interesting one. It says, Hi, Jack. Two education bits. This comes from James. One, stupid teacher training. I have a friend studying theater education. One of the tests he had to take for a class in the education department at school had the, this question. Which of these is not commonly studied in the theater history? The correct answer was English Renaissance. Which of the which of these is not stu- not a commonly studied area of theater history? The English Renaissance. I guess the people who decide whether or not someone is qualified to teach theater have never heard of Shakespeare before. I'll reserve judgment on that. I, I think it's a valid point, but that's one of those things. I don't have enough information. And the reason I didn't just read the second part of this email, which is really interesting is because that's how you have to take things. Do you, do you, I mean, why is that the case? I mean, is it the case because they don't know who Shakespeare is, or is it the case because um, when it comes to theater history, there wasn't much other than Shakespeare during the Renaissance, or is it because it's considered an advanced topic that's taken it late? I don't know. I, I don't know. So I'm not going to just write that off as being indoctrination. I find it interesting, though. I find it interesting, and it could be because, I mean, I'm going conspiracy hat theorists here just for a second, just as an interesting thought and idea, that if one were to actually know and study the works of Shakespeare, one would have a fundamental understanding about the operational workings of government and those in power, and power struggles, and scandal, and falsehood. And how people think. So when I would say to you, if you had a fundamental understanding of Hamlet, and I would say right now, Obama is Hamlet playing the fool, you would know what I'm talking about. So it may be that we don't want our young people studying things like Shakespeare that actually explain power struggles at higher levels, but I read multiple Shakespearean plays in high school, so I I don't really understand that. But I'll give a pass on that one. Because that's not important enough. I'm like, I'm like, give a shit meter. It's pretty low, right? 
So I, I don't care enough to, to investigate. But if somebody did and wanted to report back to me, I might find the results interesting. Two, though, from James, additional indoctrination. A recent letter to the editor of our local paper talking about public schools said one of the things education is about is about is running for student council. Struck me that with student government, in addition to Prussian cog in the machine training you've mentioned, schools are instilling the idea that we need to vote. Then again, I recall caring less about my student government than I did about the last election when I wrote in my my own name for the Senate vote. Um, here is my thoughts on this. I actually think that student government, especially in high school, is a perfect lesson for our children about government if we'll guide them through it, as I'm about to guide you. So... Yes, I do think it's a vote indoctrination thing, like voting is your civic duty, that type of thing, because they want you vested in either, they don't care what side of the system you're vested in, they just want you vested, so that you will follow all of the control mechanisms that they put out, like ISIS is going to blow up your bedroom, okay? So I just, I agree with that. But, it doesn't mean we can't teach our children about government with student government. So I want you to think about, What student government is and what it does, what it doesn't do and how it works. So what happens with student government is there's a range of offices. And generally speaking, no one really cares about who is some kind of rep, this or that, that they come up with names for different councils. And, and people care only a little bit about who might become the vice president. But the president is the only one that anybody really seems to give a shit about at any given time during the student body election cycle to elect the president. The president will be, this position of president will be sought by kids that are largely popular. There'll be maybe one or two totally unpopular kids with no chance to win that probably actually have a better understanding of everything that's going on that affects the lives of students, but no one will vote for them because, well, they're not going to win, so why waste your vote? Um, there'll probably be two leading candidates for the, the student body president. Both will be very popular and, and, and have very large groups of people that follow them. One might be a jock and one might be really high academic level or something like that or what have you. Or more might be more of the preppy click and one more of the jock click or whatever. Uh, but who knows? But there'll be this, this cult of personality around both of them. And both of them will put up lots of signs to beg for your votes. They'll get their friends to go out and try to get other friends to get you to vote for them. There'll be a whole shitload of kids in the school, probably somewhere near half, that just don't give a damn. And when somebody talks to them, they'll be like, yeah, I'll vote for so-and-so, whatever, shut up, go away. Um, or like they'll just say, I don't really care, and then they'll be ostracized for it. Huh? Sound familiar? Okay, so the the, the participation rate will be... Very high in a student election because they, they, they kind of like make you do it, so to speak. They don't hold a gun to your head and make you do it. But like, we're all going to vote now, right? So they give you a ballot, you check it off. Uh, a good 20 to 25% a large class uh, of students won't even know anything about any of the people that they're voting for other than the presidents that might have a debate in the auditorium. Okay? <laughs> and they'll just vote for the, oh, I've heard of her. And I've heard of him. Uh, those two guys, uh, he was cuter, whatever, right? Okay. 
And then the majorities that follow to either side of the two leading candidates will be people they know or that they want, that people that want to be in their clique or whatever. And then there'll be this election. And with much ado about nothing, they will announce that Joe Blow, Joe Spooty, whoever has become president of Joe Spooty High School. And all honor to the president. And then they will have a student council that might meet once in a while and discuss things, but actually has no power over what happens in the school because the people running the school don't really give a shit what the student government wants at all, and they have all the money and therefore have all the control. So I, I don't know. I'm just thinking if we actually explain to our teenagers that their student government was almost an exact repl representative of the federal government that was so important that we're supposed to vote for that they might learn something from it. Maybe you have today. I don't know. Let's move on and take another one. Um, here's another question. This one has a lot to do with you know our operations here at Nine Mile Farm. And our ducks and chicken eggs. It says, Jack, how would you answer an egg customer who's asking about salmonella in your eggs? I have non-GMO pastured poultry and egg operation in South Louisiana. And I've been faced with this question and found myself having a hard time explaining Greg from Mossy Ridge Farm. Well, this is what I would say. Um, it, 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 when you're consuming eggs, there's always a risk of something. Period. I don't care where the egg came from. There's a risk. The risk is pretty low. And here's what we do on our farm to mitigate your risk. And then I would describe whatever that process is, such as we keep deep bales of straw down. We pick eggs up. If there's any fecal matter on them, we remove them. I would explain what the blem is, which is the protective covering on the egg. And I would say we offer our customers two options. One, we can wash the eggs in warm water, which is considered one of the best practices, and then coat them with oil to protect them further. And as soon as that's done, they're put in refrigeration and stored in refrigeration to reduce the potential of, of disease increasing in them. Or we leave them intact and we don't remove the blem, which is going to make sure that nothing gets into them. And uh, in that case, we ask that you take and do proper washing procedures before you break your eggs open and use them, and that they be washed in warm water when you do so, so that you actually create a drawing out effect rather than a pushing in effect as that blem is removed. But I can't guarantee you that eggs will ever be free of any pathogen, but I would want you to know that eggs in themselves are not transmitters of salmonella. What actually transmits salmonella is the fecal matter of the bird, and it is only when that fecal matter is able to get inside the egg and begin to propagate that there's a risk. So your risk is mitigated through washing. It's just up to you when you want those eggs washed. We can do it for you in advance so they look better, or you can do it for yourself before you eat them. That's it. There's no more. And I might put together for customers that are really concerned a list of websites where they can learn more about it. But the reality is there's been some salmonella recently, but it ain't been from, uh, from people producing eggs on the side of the road. And that the big risk of salmonella in factory operations is so many birds living so close together, doing so much shitting at the place that they're laying their eggs in confinement operations. It's not that it's impossible to contract salmonella from an egg from a pastured bird. It's just, it's probably no more likely then it is that you could end up getting it from a factory-produced egg, even though they've supposedly irradiated, irradiated everything out of it. Further, if you fully cook it, there's no risk. So if you're cooking omelets, if you're doing scrambled eggs, 
if you're using any of your cakes and, and, and pies and stuff like that, there's zero risk because it's killed by, by heat. I would also point out to them that uh, if, if they're really concerned about bringing anything into their home that has the potential risk of salmonella, they really need to look at what the government says is an acceptable amount of salmonella in chicken that you buy from the supermarket and bring into your home. Because basically the government standard is in excess of 20% of the birds coming out of factory processing facilities. If tested, having salmonella is acceptable. So it's likely the case that at least one in five chicken parts that you cook in your home had salmonella on it. And it's, it's rendered inert because you cook chicken to a high enough temperature to do so. But if you're going to get salmonella from exposure to anything, it's probably more from your, your improper handling of raw poultry, like not washing your hands, getting it on somewhere, having it multiply, etc., than it is to get it from anybody's eggs. There's not much more to it than that, guys. That's just the reality. But to say, well, there's no risk, it would be disingenuous and inaccurate. There's risks inherent to everything that we do in life. It is up to us to make fully informed decisions about how much risk we're willing to accept. So I actually think there's less risk in eating high-quality eggs than in eating shitty eggs from a factory. That's my choice. And that's why I provide those eggs to my customers who want to make that choice. My thoughts, but that's just rational, logical thinking, acknowledging the facts along the way, doing the research, finding the information, and not overstating or, you know, underestimating the risk. And if you're going to eat a bunch, I mean, there's people that keep chickens, ducks, etc. on their property that have literally eaten hundreds of, of undercooked raw eggs, etc., made cakes, licked the spoon, whatever, for, for you know 20 years, never contracted anything from their birds. And that's probably normal. Again, if you're not doing a confinement operation where the birds are literally shitting where they're laying eggs, it's probably and you're letting the birds get out and they can take care of themselves and be healthy, etc., they're not building up diseases, it's probably normal. But it is not accurate to say that the risk is not there at all. Just like it's not inaccurate to say that vaccines are perfectly safe and there's no risk. There's a risk. And we have to make a determination for ourselves. Which egg do I eat? Which bottle of milk do I buy? And what do I allow a medical person to put into my child's body? These are all choices for us as individuals and as in parents. And it really is not the government's duty to tell us what choice to make. It's our duty to be informed enough to make proper choices. And what the government's duty is supposed to be is not to say, this is what you have to do, but you better be doing what you say you do. That's actually the role of government in these issues. That if I tell you, this is how I handle my eggs, and you buy my eggs, and you knew the risk, I knew the risk, and you happen to get sick, well, you get sick. If I tell you this is what I do, and then you can show that not only were you injured, but you were injured, and it's probable that it's because I misrepresented what I do, then the role of government is to say you misrepresented yourself to this individual, therefore the risks were not calculable, and therefore you, you defrauded them, and you're responsible for their injury, at least on some level. This would be a logical government. This would make sense. 
But it would require a thinking and logical people that are well-informed and educated. And your government's sure done a lot to make that not likely. In fact, when you present things like that to many people, they'll say, well, but most people are too dumb to be trusted. Well, maybe, maybe people would learn to walk if we got them out of the wheelchair. And maybe if we didn't put up a sign that said no running, they would learn to run. I'm just saying, let's take another one. Now here's another one for some, you know, logical thought process things. You know, we have people come out and, and tell us what government is actually doing to us and in invading our privacy. And they're labeled as traitors and given Snowden jobs and have to run away for their life and threatened with executions, etc. But there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Um, I'm only reading this because this was sent to me because I actually feel afraid for this individual if his department learns that he or she has told me this. So I'm going to give no information whatsoever on who this person is. And as if I'm reading this, if I see anything geographically specific, I'll ignore it and skip over it, though I don't expect it to be there. I've been through it twice. But I just want to. I'm actually concerned for this person's employment. And I need people like this working so we can know the truth about what's going on. Brevity first. As a local Leo, which is law enforcement officer, for those who don't know, I have been informed by my department that I am a frontline intel gatherer for collecting files on everybody I deal with, not just criminals, to be sent at least to the FBI to be stored indefinitely, oh, without their knowledge or consent. Background. The department I work for has a program where anybody that needs a fingerprint card, either for a job or for a license, etc., can come into the main lobby, sign in, pay us money, we electronically do a background check of their prints, and they leave with their fingerprint card. Well, this would be like, in Texas anyway, you need to get fingerprints as part of your vetting and a background check to get your concealed carry permit. So a law-abiding citizen... And I don't know where this guy is. He hasn't told me, and I don't want to know. But here in Texas, to get your concealed carry, that's one of the steps you have to make. So you law-abiding citizen, you go to your local police department, you get this done, you send your paperwork in. What happens next? What happens next? What do you think happens? Remember, you've broken no law. You've voluntarily gone in to submit to a background check to acquire some privilege or access to some right that you've otherwise been denied. You've paid for it, by the way. What happens next? What do you think? Back to the letter. What we don't tell the people that get prints done at our department. Those high-tech cameras in our lobbies, we didn't pay for those. The FBI funded those Space Age HD cameras that we use. That high-tech electronic fingerprint machine, the feds gave it to us. Your prints, we don't just store those in the system temporarily and check them to ensure that you're not wanted for a crime. No, we send them to the feds, who now store them indefinitely, and they're added to your file, oh, which has copies of our sign-in log in the lobby, so we get your name and everybody else's name in the lobby. And the names that are added to the, and, and their names are added to your name file too. So you're there and some guy named Joe Spooty sitting next to you waiting for his turn. You two are seen as linked because you occupied the same space at the same, same time. Just saying. And the cameras take a picture of you when you walk in and timestamp of you standing in the lobby. And that gets sent to the feds with your fingerprints. 
Also, the names and photos of anybody else that was with you or just happened to be with you in the lobby at the same time as you. And the citizens pay us to print cards. The feds give us all the equipment, and we make out in the process having new revenue stream, and all we do is send that info to the feds. Side note, the technology has been given to every patrol officer in a wireless small frame package where we can fingerprint anybody on the street with their permission. Ha, 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 right? And that, along with any reports we write, gets pulled by the feds for dissemination also. From my understanding, this guy doesn't get a lot of street-level officers in his office. I may have been one of the few to have this info. And one of the only few that believes that the oath is not just something we do once when we get hired, but it's something we believe in for the duration. But at least now I am armed with some extra knowledge and I'm able to share it with you. Your thoughts can't wait. Um, if this doesn't disturb you, I need you to do something. Take your, 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 your middle finger and your index finger in your right hand and, and then on your wrist on your left hand. There should be some veins there and what have you. You'll feel a little space in there. Push it in there and see. Do you feel anything going on? Do you have a, do you have a pulse? So what this means is that, for instance, I had a, a guy on the show here uh, long ago. Uh, it was part of a duo of a talk radio team in, in Louisiana called Baldy and the Blonde. And Baldy said, this is like four years ago now, that the United States federal government is compiling dossiers on every single citizen. This just confirms that. And is Edward Snowden a traitor? For confirming things like this. How far... Are we willing to let this stuff go and just like brush it off and say it's okay? How many times are we going to get upset about something stupid like some some random ass clown senator or, or rep or whatever he is in Montana wanting to make a law against yoga pants? And there's absolute flipping outrage over this on Facebook. A idiot that wants a law that ain't going to pass, period. And if it did... I would say good because the backlash for it will pin the ears back of local representatives like they've never seen before. Okay? Idiotic. But but no one's upset over this. You know why? Because you have an upset quota. You have a fear and anger quota. There's only so much that goes in at one time and can be accepted at one time and can be acted upon at one time. So as long as I can fill it up with something else, you don't have time for this. And that's your media. It's it's like this. Like if you go to um, a you go to a mall. Here's a good example. Go to a mall. My my wife loves Yankee candles. Some of them not so much because some of them smell pretty and some of them stink. Um, by the way, I think all the ones that are scented like food stink. And uh, so you go in a Yankee candle and you're like, oh, it's cinnamon apple, and you smell it, right? And you and you smell a different one. After a while, you get like, I I I can't. I, I can't tell what it smells like anymore. It all smells the same. So they have a jar of coffee beans. And you open the jar of coffee beans and you take a big whiff of coffee beans. And you fill up your olfactory senses with something totally different. And then you can go back and tell cinnamon apple from whatever. Okay? This is what the news is like. The jar of coffee beans is your ability to retract from the crap they're presenting you with 
and ask yourself, does this really matter? Does this really pertain to me? Is ISIS really going to set a nuclear bomb off in my underpants? Or is this maybe just a little bit overblown as to how it threatens me personally? I mean, do I really need to be upset about the fact that there's people killing each other in a part of the world where people have been killing each other for 2,000 years? I mean, I don't want it to happen. I wish it wouldn't happen. But do I really think that my concern will have an influence? That's a big old whiff of, of beautiful coffee. And now I can smell the bullshit. And then I might be able to say, you know what? This actually matters. The fact that I, a law-abiding citizen, when being asked to present a background check to any company that wants to hire me or to acquire any kind of permit or license or anything like that that I'd like to acquire, trust my local law enforcement. Walk down there and pay them a fee. And they take my records and they begin the creation of a, a, a profile on me and send that to the federal government who's paid for all the equipment so that they can charge me to make my card. This bothers me. Now, it also, for me, is kind of low on my circle of influence. I've told you about it. That's about all I can do. But you know what we could do? We could say, you know what? I'm not using this type of a service then. How else can I get this done? Might somebody out there, an enterprising entrepreneur, create a background check company that promises not to give information about anybody they've run a background check on to anybody. The problem is, see, this is where you start to lose control. Well, how are you going to run a background check? Who's going to get notified when you do? What are they going to do with the fact that that background check was run? So we've let this go too far. We're at a point now where only a deconstruction of the monster will work. And there's a lot of upheaval that's coming. And we're either going to make it or break it in a transitional period over the next 20 years. America either fulfills its destiny in the next couple decades, or America becomes the largest, most oppressive police state that's ever existed. They may not murder as many people, but slaves are no good if they're dead to you. Slaves are only useful when they're out in the fields picking the cotton and turning the cotton gin. And today, that just means something different. And today the slave provides his own housing. You put a gun to his head and make him provide his own health insurance. Let me, by the way, before I leave this topic, I just want, now that I, I said that, I want to point something out to you. Have you noticed that the media consistently says that you have to sign up for health care? Health care. Health insurance is not health care. It's health insurance that pays for parts of health care services. They are not the same thing. That's another big pile of steaming bullshit soup that they fed you. That insurance equals care. That would be like saying, well, I have auto insurance, therefore my maintenance is taken care of on my vehicle. No, you have insurance in case damage occurs to your vehicle under certain conditions in which they'll pay certain fees for certain things. And you have deductibles and all this other stuff. Everybody understands this. Folks, health insurance works the same way. But we'll just call it health care. Now people have health care. People have pretty much always had health care. Now what people have is insurance, whether they want it or not, 
including my wife, who has no need of maternity coverage, but she has that. She has that. We've got to have that. We have to have maternity coverage for all women, regardless of whether or not they're actually capable of having a child any longer. doesn't matter. Got to have it. It's unfair. It's evil Republicans that don't want women's rights, that want to take away the right of a woman who has passed childbearing years to have maternity coverage. And people believe it. And people believe that you can trust a government who is gathering data and intelligence on you while you're engaged in activity that is perfectly legal and often required by same-said government to be able to do things that you probably should be able to do without any permission at all. Let's take another one. Well, this next one's time for some humor. Um, it, it, as many of you may have heard, an atrocity has occurred. Oh, the world is going to end now. Um, a, a higher court overruled a same-sex marriage ban in Alabama, and, 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 and gay people are now afforded equal protection under the law with marriage contracts in Alabama. And there's much wailing and gnashing of teeth because this affects you guys. I mean, come on. So I've got the redneck reporter here from Redneck News. You would think would be really opposed to this and might even start out like he is, but I think if you listen to it, he'll make a good point and maybe give you a laugh. Let's pause for this. Good afternoon. This is Jeremy Attaway reporting live from Blunt County. Uh, I read on uh, the news today some uh, information that homosexuals will be getting married in the state of Alabama today. And so I wanted to give you a live report from Blunt County. All right. This uh, pile of uh, brush is still here. And there are no homosexuals laying on top of it doing homosexual things. None in the shed either. But we've got to check into this further. All right, we're, we're back here at my pile of junk, and uh, it's still here. Uh, no homosexuals laying around doing homosexual things back here. And so uh, it looks like we're pretty safe here in, uh, in Blount County, and we're not going to be subjected to any kind of uh, uh, plagues of uh, homosexuals falling from the sky. Uh so that's the report here from Blood County. Uh, everything's pretty much still the same. Although I did see two squirrels earlier that were kind of suspect. So uh, we should look into that further because it may be spread into the squirrel population. This is J.T. Attaway reporting for Redneck News. Now again, some of you are upset with me for playing that. And, you know, but, you know, my, my junk pile's still there. It didn't go anywhere. And... This is a guy's way of trying to say, you know what, this really doesn't affect the price of tea in China, and it certainly doesn't affect the temperature of your swimming pool, uh, well, the food that's in your refrigerator, or your life in any meaningful way for two dudes or two girls to be married to each other rather than just living together and not being married. This is an attempt to legislate your religion onto other people. 
This is a big part of the recent uh, resurgence of the whole this is a Christian nation uh, debate. And the way that we determine this is a Christian nation is, well, most people that founded it were Christians. Well, that's what we call majority rule. And that's what we call majority rule at the expense of minority rights, if we're going to say that, that just because the majority were. And I personally believe of many of, of the, some of our key founders were deists, several of them because, well, they said so. And pointing to a speech a politician gave or the fact that somebody went to church doesn't prove that they were a Christian. There's plenty of people that go to church that aren't Christians. I think we all know that to be the case. But it's irrelevant. Let's imagine that Thomas Jefferson wanted a deist. Let's say he was a devout Methodist or Baptist or Episcopalian or whatever you want to say. Um, if we're going to legislate from that stance because so-and-so was, well, which one? Should we make divorce almost impossible to obtain because that's what Catholicism says? What about drinking? There's some members of different Christian faiths that specifically feel that drinking is sinful and shouldn't be done. And there's others that are totally okay with it. So which one? Which one do we follow? And the answer is we don't follow either one of them. You know, should we... I mean, one thing most Christians agree upon is that the Sabbath is now Sunday instead of Saturday. So if we're being a Christian nation, should we have all businesses closed on Sundays? There were some laws like that. They were blue laws. And... One of the things people will say is, well, the states had a lot of like religious laws in the past, and they did. Do you think that's a good thing? But the federal government itself was specifically forbidden from doing any of these things. And if we're a Christian nation, I would like you to show me the word Christian in our Constitution or our Declaration of Independence. That in no way belittles the contribution of many wonderful Christians to the formation of this nation. That in no way belittles your faith. It's just a statement of fact. We are a nation formed as a constitutional republic that elects our leaders through a democratic process. That is what we are. We are nothing more and we are nothing less. Now, if you want to tell me we are a nation primarily made of Christians, I would say, by the numbers, you're correct. And I'm okay with that. But that doesn't mean that you can use your religion as justification to restrict another person's activities. Now, what do I really think we should do about marriage? I think that we should stop, especially for those of you with the religious connotation, having polygamistic, polygamistic marriages. Your marriage in this nation... Right now is a polygamist marriage, because it's between more than two parties. And I guess traditionally it's three parties, you, your partner, and God, if you're having a religious marriage. But that's more, it's you and your partner, and God has said, this I recognize. But not with the state, no, no. See, when the state steps into its role as a false god, then it says, not only do I recognize your marriage, I police it, and I set the terms of your contract. And let's say you and your wife got married in the state of Texas, under Texas law, with everything that Texas law says about joint property, common property, uh, divorce, uh, obligations to each other upon divorce, etc. You now have a contract between you, your spouse, and the state of Texas. You do understand that if you move to Florida, that Florida alters your contract, right? 
without your consent or notifying you. Did you know that? That the minute the two of you choose to become residents of the state of Florida, they now oversee your contract without your consent that was entered in upon in the state of Texas. This doesn't sound like marriage to me. This sounds like a legal agreement with the federal government through its proxies in the form of the individual states. Because that's what it is. That's what it is. Now, once I analyze it that way, I'll look at it and say, in our current system of government, flawed though it may be, there are certain advantages to being married. Like, well, you can pay more taxes, marriage penalty tax. You guys should be overjoyed about those gay folks paying the marriage penalty tax. I mean, really, you should be happy about it. Um, but on a serious note, there are certain things that are granted to a person because they're a spouse. And one would be somebody lying in a hospital bed that was injured in a car wreck dying. And people not being allowed in because they're not immediate family. I think you're a pretty heartless son of a bitch if you would deny anybody that right who loved another person regardless of their, their orientation. Why do we have this in the first place? Because the state has entered into the marriage institution where it doesn't belong. It just doesn't belong there. That's my view. My view is that that would be the solution. To like, Remember we started this off with, let's examine the locations at which the state has overstepped its bounds, and with the goal of no government, let's at least agree to the things they shouldn't be doing. And policing your marriage is one of them. But before you swallow the next cup of bullshit soup, remember from Redneck News, his pile of junk's still there. And there's no homosexuals doing homosexual things in his shed. At least not yet. But folks, keep an eye on the squirrels. You never know. Uh, how about a little bit more humor? Um, <laughs> at least initially, we'll start out with some humor. Hey, Jack Damon here from northern Minnesota. I just wanted to say th one thing. You are a freaking asshole because I stupidly listened to your dumb advice. I paid all my student loan off five to ten years early. Now I have all this extra money I don't know what to do with. I've taken to stuffing it in fire and water retardant cases. You give horrible advice. And no, I will not be letting you have the extra cash. Not a dime of it. Well, except for the $50 MSV membership, but that's it. Ha ha, thanks, Jack. It's awesome to be debt-free. That's from a prior episode I said where no one's ever going to email me saying basically those things seriously. I guess somebody would send it in jest, though. Um, but here's this question. Here's a question I have for you. What is spirituality to you, and how does it make your life better? I've heard you call us atheists, empty and sad, on a few occasions. You suggest that there is some spirituality needed to live a happy and fulfilled life. But there are a lot of times when you describe something as spiritual, and I know what you're talking about, but I just see it a natural, everyday, mundane thing. Uh, I just like to put this in the small, Jack doesn't know what he's talking about category, but if you have some mind-altering information, I'd want to know about it. Well... Here's how I feel about this. And for those that don't know, that have ever heard me speak on this before, I'm what's called a deist, which means I believe in a God, a creator, an architect of the universe, a God that is. And in the most basic way that means God is. And that's it. And, and that's enough for me. And that allows me to be open to the fact that there are things that I cannot explain, but there's an order, a symphony, a music to the universe as if there were. 
and that there is some higher intelligence. And I don't understand or pretend to understand exactly what God is, just that God is. God may be an entity unto God's self, or God may be the sum total collective consciousness of all beings in the universe and multiverses. In other words, God may simply be that which sees through the eyes of all. I don't know, and I'm okay with that. That's not even really defining spirituality for me, though. To me, spirituality is simply understanding that there is more than we see. That there, there is a continuation of existence for us in some form. You may call it a soul, and I don't know that that's a bad word for it. A consciousness, an energy, and that there is more to look forward to than the, you know, for average 70, 80 years of, of so-called life that we get here. There is another component to existence. And when we're there, will we remember everything? Will we see all the people from our prior life? I, I don't know. I'd like to believe so, but I think to say that I know so would be disingenuous, and it's then an article of faith versus an article of spirituality. Faith is what you believe in. Spirituality is understanding what you are. And I don't actually say that atheists are in of themselves empty and sad. I think what I say is that there is an emptiness and a sadness that exists with atheists that does not exist with those who have any form of spirituality, whether it's Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, shamanic, pagan, that anything that acknowledges the higher level, the, the acknowledgement of creation itself, not being an accident, takes you to a level of understanding of things And it takes you to a level of peace that I don't believe most people that believe in nothing other than random happenstance of physics will ever have. That doesn't make them empty and sad. It makes that there's parts of their lives that can become that way. And I never said it's necessary to live a happy and fulfilled life to, to have a spiritual component to yourself. What I've said is that you will not obtain your highest potential of happiness and fulfillment without some spiritual component in your life. You might be really happy. You might be happier than the guy down the street. What I'm suggesting is that you could be happier. And I don't mean it the way that I think some atheists and agnostics would say, oh, well, you know, if you believe in the magic man that lives in the sky, it's nice to think that way, but, you know, it's nice to think that way about the Easter Bunny, too. You know? I don't mean it that way. I mean, the understanding of how small you are, yet how large your impact truly is in the world and maybe even the universe, to understand that you are both nothing and infinite at the same time. It's, it's a very hard thing, and I think part of it is... To me, true spirituality is when you've had spiritual experiences. When you truly know, not believe, but know that you are more than a mortal shell. And if I could write a book and explain it to you, I would, and I can't. If I could explain it to you with words in audio or video, then I would. If I could draw it as an artist and explain it to you so that you would understand it, I would, but I can't. 
But there are moments, and I believe that it can occur with any faith or any belief system, especially as you begin to rise above the fear components of that belief system, and you actually challenge that belief system with logic, in fact, and accept that maybe everything written isn't absolutely 100% the truth, right? And I know that's hard for some people to accept, but most of you don't stone your kids when they're disobedient. Oh, that was a different time. Oh, I don't know about that. Right? How did it stop being? Why is it that there are certain things that we're still not supposed to do or supposed to do, but there's other things that we're no longer supposed to do or we're no longer uh, supposed to do from the same book, from the same time? Why is it that we no longer would stone a disobedient child, but it's still wrong to steal? So when you have that conflict and you can start to look at your faith and say, how is this spiritual to me in spite of the fact that some of this is oral tradition, some of this I believe is from God's own mouth, if that's what you believe. But it's up to me to discern that which it is for me. That it starts to hedge you on a path toward an understanding, a consciousness, an engagement with something beyond yourself. Some would call it the divine. Some would call it the miraculous. I just say it's beyond yourself. And yet you're connected to it. And I think that trying to explain to somebody what they're lacking when they lack that, it's like trying to tell somebody what chocolate tastes like that's not only never had chocolate, but they've never had anything that has chocolate-like components. You've never had a, a stout beer. You've never had a cup of coffee. You've never had you know uh, uh, anything that even resembles chocolate. And now you're asking me to explain chocolate to you. Well, I can't. I can tell you that it's good. It tastes wonderful. That it's. I can t- try to give you uh, you know adjectives like creamy and sweet. And bitter. And how can it be sweet and bitter? Well, it is. You'd have to try it to understand it. And what's more complicated is spirituality, unlike chocolate, you can't just go get a bar of it and taste it and go, oh, now I understand. You have to go on a quest for it. And I think that my biggest criticism of religions is people think that by going through a ritual or reading a book or professing a faith or any of these things in of themselves, that they've attained any level of spirituality, I find is is preposterous. I didn't say they weren't religious. I didn't say they didn't believe it. I said they just haven't necessarily, just because you've done that doesn't mean you've obtained any understanding of what spiritual is. And it's something people will find out for themselves. It's like chocolate. You'll have to taste it to understand it. Now, what it brings to my life is an incredible reverence and an incredible gratitude. It allows me to understand what the word blessed really means. It doesn't mean that you've been given something by someone that decided you were supposed to have it because of who you were, and the guy next to you just wasn't as deserving as you, so he didn't get it. It means that we all are. That life itself is an incredible gift, an incredible experience. And it's up to us to figure out what to do with it. And to realize 
that if we fail to capitalize on that gift, then we fail to appreciate the blessing that simply existing truly is. That's what it means to me. This is not really a survival topic. But since you asked, that's how I feel. Now, whether or not that is mind-altering information, I don't know. But it's never my intent to alter your mind, only to have you think. And I would ask this to those that say there is no creator, there is no source beyond creation. If I took something far less complex than the universe, a simple Swiss pocket watch, and without having to have molecules and atoms come together to make up all the little components of that watch, I put them all into a small bag and then agitated that bag in some way so that the parts would move around and stick together. And I did so for a million years. I'd never get a watch. Ever. Long before the parts came together to make a watch, they would become dust. The watch does not occur without a maker. A house does not spontaneously appear. All things, man can't make a leaf. We can alter the genetic makeup of a life form. We can combine things like the DNA of a fish with the DNA of a cotton plant. But we can't make a single cell from scratch. To me, that means there's something more. There's an intelligence. There is a creator. The creator is evidenced by its creation. That's, that's fundamental deism. God is. Either that matters to you, or it doesn't. I won't try to tell you to change your mind. I will tell you that if you investigated it and experienced it for yourself, it might give more meaning to your existence. Let's take another one. Uh, this one comes in from Justin. Justin says, I was listening to Prof. CJ's podcast series on the U.S. dollar. He had a quote from a coin historian and dealer. It, it paraphrased, he said, When your currency has mythological and national figures on it, you're okay. You're free. When it starts having dead politicians on it, it's time to get concerned. And when your currency has live politicians on it, it's time to get the hell out. Quote seems to have a lot of wisdom for me. So looking at U.S. currency, there were mythological and natural figures for over a 100 years until the Federal Reserve took over. Then immediately came dead politicians for the past 107 years or so and counting. So the question becomes, when, if ever, do you think the U.S. would start having live politicians on it? Well, I hope never. Uh, I will point out that it's not. It is not the issuance of the Federal Reserve that created the first politician, dead or alive, on U.S. coinage. Because the Lincoln Penny was first minted in 1909. And I don't even know if any other coins with politicians on it were minted prior to 1913. I didn't check. The reason I know about 1909 Lincoln is there's one particular 1909 Lincoln that's like worth a million dollars or something like that. So just that little Jeopardy factoid in my head lets me know that it wasn't exactly when the Federal Reserve started. And another thing that we need to understand is for the first half century of this country, we didn't even have a national currency. We used things like the Spanish pieces of eight as the U.S. dollar, which was a silver coin made by the Spanish. 
So we didn't even have a national currency in the way that we think of it today. And then we did. And then things kind of spiraled from there. But if you look, there was a transitional period. If you look at the peace dollar from uh, the 1920s, when it came back, uh, it was still a mythological figure. Walking Liberty half dollar was well past the establishment of the Federal Reserve and well past many other forms of currency having politicians on it. And it was still Lady Liberty. It was still a mythological figure. So there was a tra there was this like this gray area where we started to merge things together. And I guess the most recent politician that, that, that's on any you know U.S. currency would be President Kennedy. Um, and that wasn't long after his death. So are we headed to a point where you know uh, Obama or Reagan? Well, Reagan's gone now, right? Obama or Bush are on our, our currency. Can't really see that. My concern is what if, what if somebody else that comes along might be that mythological life politician that people actually would get behind? I, that's my bigger concern. You know, Again, we're staying with the critical thinking and the history that we've experienced over the last, you know, eight years together, uh, or I guess seven years, six years together, six years, six years, 2008, seven years almost here on TSP. And one of the things I've said over the past few years is that I believe in the next presidential election, we're headed for a very dark place. That whoever wins the next presidential election is likely to be somebody that nobody's even really talking about yet. It ain't going to be Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton. It's almost like you're being scared with that as part of the whole pantomime. Oh my God, look how stupid these two people are. How ridiculous is it that these are your two front runners? Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton? I mean, do, do we really want a King Abdullah? Do we, are we, are we trying to create family legacies here or what? But I just don't see either one of those people being electable. And what I said earlier about Hamlet and Obama playing the fool is whether you like President Obama or not, and I pretty much hate all politicians, just so you know where I'm coming from, you cannot argue that for about five years, the first term and the first year of his, his second term, He's a very effective president. I didn't say good. I said effective. If he wanted something, he got it done. And he played some golf and all, but you didn't see all the memes about him playing golf constantly. He didn't look like an idiot. He did some dumb stuff. It's almost like his stupidity was something even his handlers couldn't, you know, prevent from coming out, like the beer summit or whatever, and just saying some dumb stuff. But overall, he looked and acted like a president. This guy now is riding around with a goofy, nerdy bike helmet on the day after King Abdullah bombs his, you know, uh, ISIS. Now, presidents have handlers and all types of publicity management. They just don't do stuff like this, you know, w without being checked a little bit. So why is he looking so incompetent? And I believe because it's now time for him to look incompetent. And I think that the next year and a half, everything 
that even remotely think seems like it could be a threat to your existence as an American will be lathered in this bullshit soup and that by the next presidential election the American people will think that Jimmy Carter was a thousand times more competent with a checkbook than Barack Obama was with the totality of the presidency. There'll be true believers that have to support him because he's a Democrat, okay? I understand that. But I mean, the the mob mentality, the herd mentality of, of the sheep will be this guy. I mean, God, we need something better. Even the people that say he was better than Romney, I would vote for him again. We need more now. We need competence. We need power. We need somebody that will protect us from all these scary things. And that they will install a president in the next election that would have been unelectable eight years ago. From a strongman standpoint. The people would have just said, this is too much. This is too extreme. I'm not going to have this. Could that be the guy that goes on the you know, $18 bill or something? I don't know. I don't know. But it is true. And it Again, I want you to start seeing interconnected patterns in all things, not just permaculture design, right? So what we talked about earlier was how the state always institutes itself as a godlike figure in the lives of its, of its subjects, of its citizenry. And money is something, whether you think they should or not, that people pay homage to. You go to any major city in America... And your two most extravagant building structures that you will find are banks and financial institutions, churches. There's a reason. It is not a coincidence. It is a mindset of America that money is power. Okay? And power is a representation of authority. And God is a representation of authority to people. And I'm not saying that everybody in America thinks money is their God, but they sure seem to think at times, at least, it's kind of sort of a demigod in a sort of way. Even if you don't, you can acknowledge there's people around you that behave that way. So when government begins to install itself on your currency, it's just bringing the analogy closer to home. We are in charge. You respect us. We are power. We represent power. And when you start to put dead politicians on it, you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, then what you're saying is the mythology around these prior presidents, these prior founders that we're instilling in you is authority in your life. It is part of the grand programming. I, I, I don't necessarily think that every day, you know, one time... It happened all in one fell swoop where a group of, you know, the Illuminati or whatever sat down and said, you know what we need to do? We switched to get out of these winged people and standing liberty things and all this crap. And we need to put like Lincoln on a penny, uh, and we need to put like Washington on the bill, the dollar bill, because he went first, you know, and then, you know what? The, the Ben Franklin guy, he gets a lot of publicity, so we need to make sure he's on something. But it's got to be something the average person doesn't really have their hands on much. So back then, a hundred dollar bill, right? You know. So and then uh, here's a here's a good joke, guys. Right? Here's a joke. Here's a joke. Right? Okay. So we're all the banksters, right? We're gonna, our mortal enemy in the past was Andrew Jackson. Let's put him on the representation of the the, the most prominent piece of currency in America, which is currently a twenty dollar gold piece. 
with the, with the you know Saint Gaudens gold piece, and let's put him on the twenty dollar piece of paper because it'll be a good job. I don't think it happened that way, but I think a general shift in the mentality of moving from a, a, a nation based on the liberty of the individual to a nation based on the collective will of the majority moves you to place honor upon instead of the idea of liberty to the authority of a president. I think there's some validity there. And I think if you think about it logically, it's hard to argue there isn't. Let us think of what Lady Liberty or a standing liberty or anything that represents freedom and liberty in a mythological space. Right? You notice it wasn't they didn't put Jesus on there. Because that was for Christians. They didn't put some representation of God, the God of Abraham on there, right? That would be universal to the Jew and to the Christian. They didn't do that. They put this universally agree upon, agree uponable symbol of just individual freedom. There's a, a, a liberty for all here. That's what went on our money. And then we put George Washington on it. And Abraham Lincoln. Ulysses Grant on the 50. Never really understood that one. Yeah, I don't know that it's time to bail out, but there's definitely a procession toward state control that goes along with changing the, one of the most powerful influences of lives of any citizenry, the money. And in the ages of empire... The current ruler, who was seen as an equivalent to God on earth, was on the coin. Hail Caesar. Something to think about. Let's take another one. So here's a, another one that came in from Patrick. He says, how do you balance these two ideas in your head? In the listener feedback show on 2915, you talked about a man that was not arrested for stealing formula, and previously, I believe, I heard you say that there should be no hate crime, punish the act, not the intent. Under punish the act, not the intent, shouldn't the man stealing formula have been arrested? For the record, as a father and compassionate human being, I'm glad the man was not arrested, and I cringe when I hear people talk about hate crimes. It brings images of the thought police. I, I don't think the two, the two issues are hard to separate at all. So no one that I know of has gotten stupid enough to suggest that we punish stealing baby formula differently If I stole it from the store because I wanted it versus I stole it from the store because I didn't want someone else to have it. I mean, it's it's theft. It's punishable by the same thing. Hate crime legislation comes into play with, with serious offenses. Arson, excessive vandalism, assault murder, attempted murder. That's when that's when we even get into the debate. So it's actually irrelevant to all lesser crimes. It just doesn't pertain. And I think that so so you have to just like let's let, before we delineate between the two, let's just take hate crime legislation out of it and pretend it didn't exist. And just say to yourself this, if I caught someone as a police officer stealing food Are there any circumstances under which I might simply take it back or pay for it for them and give it to them and send them on their way? And there might there be some circumstances where I would arrest them. And is it even possible that those two worlds exist? And I think the answer is, well, yeah. 
there's there's certain points where you go, this person was like starving to death or their kid was starving to death or whatever, and it doesn't absolve the crime, but I'm not helping by arresting them. And what this person needs is some compassion and some time to figure some stuff out. And we need to figure out how to get this person some help. Because this person is not trying to harm anybody. And, and, and we're also in a position where you get to a certain point where you look at it and say, if it was me, would I do the same thing? Or would I let my child go hungry rather than steal baby formula? So there's this judgment point where you have to start saying, well, under that circumstance, I may have acted the same way. In fact, I probably would have. I may have done more in the eyes of the law that would be wrong. And that's where you make those judgments. But I would also say that, and let's leave something out, like somebody's trying to kill you with a machete and you shoot them with a .45. If you, as a law enforcement officer, encountered someone that tried to kill somebody or wounded somebody with a firearm or did successfully kill somebody with a firearm, any of the three, threatened to do so, tried to do so, or successfully shot somebody, They're all varying degrees of penalty. They're all varying degrees of severity under the law. But again, unless somebody's trying to kill you with a screwdriver or something like that, there's probably no instance where you'd go, eh, no, he was hungry, so he shot the guy for his wallet. That's that, It's ridiculous you, because there's a severity level where the crime has indeed a severe enough consequence that there has to be some level of Uh, of, of uh, justice we can't let that happen what is the consequence of somebody stealing a can of baby formula the store owner's out a couple of bucks it's not good, can't have everybody doing it but, and I might arrest you for shoplifting something of equal value the this, this circumstances are situational Will and, and I know you're not going to jail for that you're going to get a ticket, You're going to get, I'm going to screw your life up worse than it already is so I'm making a judgment here And I might not do it for the next person. I'm making a judgment on many things in that situation. How does the person react? Do they seem like they, they really didn't want to do it, but they had to? Or do they seem like a person that just like, yeah, maybe they took it for their kid, but they, they generally still shit anyway. Does the person have a record? Have they ever done anything like this before? All these things are part of, when you do get arrested and put in a courtroom, a judge takes all these things into consideration. So as a law enforcement officer, and again, if the store manager says, I want this person arrested, then the officer's going to have to arrest them. So the victim was involved in the decision-making process. None of that has anything to do with hate crime legislation. It all has to do with the situation around the offense. Hate crime legislation is to say that If someone kills you because you're black and someone kills me because they want my wallet, that your life had greater value than mine. That It's not even about the intent. It's about the meaning of doing something like this. So if criminal A takes a machete and chops up a family of four with a machete because he's an asshole. And criminal B takes a machete and chops up a house full of people because they were Jewish. 
and he hates Jews. Which one should face a greater penalty? The crime is so severe that the penalty is based on the crime. I, I don't even see a problem justifying those two sides of things. I'm actually trying to find a problem between the two. And I think when you're using logical thought process here, it's just not there. That putting it another way, we're not policing the intent. We're policing the situation. So if, <laughs> if we were just doing the intent, all right, I was stealing the formula for my child. Okay? All right. If this person has any means to feed their child and they're choosing to steal, the intent was the same for both people. One guy's completely at a loss. I just, I, I don't have it. My kid is going to be hungry today if I don't do this. And the other one is, well, I, I could have done it, but I wanted other things with my money, therefore I stole, but both intended the same thing. So two people murdered someone, right, for the same reason they wanted them dead. All right? Now, the situation is different, though. If I murdered you, it's not justifiable under law, but if I murdered you because you raped my daughter. Okay? That's the situation. And you did it. And then somebody else murders someone just like you because they wanted the stuff in your house. Under the law, I am probably going to serve less of a sentence than the other party. Because it's situational. Right? Now, if I happen to murder you for raping my daughter and you happen to be black, and you can even prove I don't like black people, it's still I've murdered you in the situation because you raped my daughter. And if somebody robbed, you know, murders you because they wanted to steal the stuff in your house, you happen to be there when they broke in, and you happen to be black, they murdered you to get your stuff. And it's clear-cut murder versus some level of mitigating circumstance. Who of us would not wish death upon someone who raped one of our children? Who of you, if you were sitting on a jury, wouldn't have a very hard time convicting the person of first-degree murder? Even though the legal definition is, is met. The person intended to kill, they had opportunity, they had motive, and that we know they did it. We know they did it. They even say, I did it. I did it. And they had knowledge of forethought. In other words, they planned it. I am going to go get this son of a bitch, and I am going to blow his brains out. It's going to be very hard to get a jury to convict that person at the same level of, this guy broke in this dude's house and killed him because he was stealing his stuff and got caught in the act. I think if you're on a jury for, for one versus the other, you, you would have a very different feeling. These are the things that have to be taken, and this is the, the component of the legal system that has common sense and analysis in it. And there's supposed to be multiple levels of checks and balances. First, you've got to get the person that's been aggressed upon 
to be willing to say, let's charge this guy with this. I, I feel like this is a crime. I don't want to fix this myself. I want the state to do something. Okay. Then the responding officer takes the person into custody. Then the state determines, do we have a case? We have a grand jury platform for larger crimes, etc. And then if we do, then there has to be a trial. And then the juror has to convict. And the juror is the final check. Because if everybody along the way wants to prosecute you, because there was no victim, so therefore the victim was the people, which means the government didn't get their way. So when, let's say, the government passes a law that says it's illegal for you to possess marijuana, and they catch you with a pound, So they say they're charging you with intent to distribute. You're like, I didn't intend to distribute anything. Just like you go to Costco or Sam's Club, I get it for less when I buy it in volume, and I smoke a lot of dope. And I want to smoke dope. So I'm guilty of possession, but not intended to distribute. And a jury wants to say, I don't care that the law says that anything over a certain amount, and I don't know what it is because I'm not an expert in that area, is intended to distribute. I don't care. I don't feel that the state made a case that this man intended to do anything other than burn a bunch of dope and get high. So I, I'm willing to convict this person on possession, but not intention to distribute. That would be an example of a partial jury nullification. And it's in, it's in, it's an absolutely imperative to live in a free society that everybody along the way uses that critical analysis. So yeah, I could be a cop. I could catch you. You could be still in formula for your baby. I come in there, I look at a situation, and I go, this guy doesn't have any money in his pocket. He's living in his car. His wife's out there with the kid right now. They're sleeping in a parking lot. This guy needs help. And I could arrest somebody else. He says, yeah, I was stealing it for my kid. And it was baby formula for your kid. But I go, the guy's got 20 bucks in his pocket. I'm probably taking you to jail for shoplifting. It's a minor offense. I actually feel that I'm helping you. So law enforcement needs to see itself as being there to help the citizen. And sometimes help is, yeah, you're a danger to yourself and others, so you're going to the pen. And some it is, sometimes it is, let me see what I can do to help you access the help that's available. And I'll tell you what. A lot of people that start off as minor criminals and become major criminals, they do it because no one has ever believed in them. And I'd rather make a mistake in believing in someone who stole formula for their kid than to be faced with the choice to make a decision about whether to believe in them five years down the road when they're quote-unquote a hardened criminal because they've been through our institutions so many times. So I, I just don't see any conflict. Let's take one more. And today's turned into a very philosophical discussion. Um, and this is another one. And if you don't like shows like this, send me your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your news stories. We don't have to talk. I mean, I know some of you are like, oh, I don't tune in for this stuff. Then participate, man. Um, but this is kind of philosophical as well. This is coming from someone that calls himself Amanda. It says, hi, Jack. What are your thoughts on pornography? And in your opinion, is it possible to be truly free? In your mind, in your life, if one is addicted to porn. This includes magazines, internet, movies, novels for both men and women. I ask because of my personal experience watching and being with my husband while he changed his way of thinking and severed a dependence on porn. That's a hell of a life, man. Um, since quitting, he's more focused, happier, more productive, and has freed his mind 
uh, and awesome resources, yourbrainonporn.com. Uh, thanks for your time, Amanda. I'll tell you what I think. I think it's irrelevant whether we're talking about porn or anything else. I think any addictive behavior is a, a, is, is a form of slavery. Whether it's drugs, or alcohol, or pornography, or anything a person can become addicted to. I believe people are definitely in this country heavily addicted to sugar, um, nicotine. I think when something's controlling your life and causing you to behave in a way that you otherwise would not behave, it's a behavior you should no longer engage in. And for most people, that means never again, ever, period, infinity. So there are plenty of people that can go have a beer or a couple beers or even once in a while tie on a load if you want to put it that way. But they're going to run their lives the way that they choose to. And then there's people that as soon as they crack the bottle, their life is off the hinges, off the rails. And they'll lose a job and they won't care they, as, long as, they can, as long as they can put another bottle to their lips. And those people should not drink ever. There's people that I believe have their lives destroyed by an addiction to cigarettes. If you have to take multiple breaks a day that you wouldn't normally take, or that you would take doing productive things to go smoke, while the people competing with you in your workplace are moving ahead of you because they're more dedicated and focused on their job than you are, and while you're outside for 20 minutes three times a day wasting an hour of the time that you're paid for, in addition to your your regular breaks and your, your lunch, and don't tell me you don't because many of you do, I've seen it, then that's altering your life. If you, can't, if you can't sit down in a restaurant for a flipping hour without firing up, you've got a problem. If you're engaged in some kind of sexual activity with your computer screen while your wife's in the other room, This is not normal behavior. This is you're being controlled. Again, it, it, to me, it's not about whether it's it's evil behavior. It's about whether this is kind of going to a spirituality thing. Does it take away from you and who you really are? Does it prevent you from realizing your potential and what you can become? So I I, I think that. There's people that can look at pornography and go, oh, that's nice. I think there's people that can go, that's kind of arousing for a minute. And then there's people that just don't care. I put myself in the I don't care category. I'm like, eh, whatever. That's not, I'm not there, so I don't care. Right? It doesn't involve me, so whatever. And, and I, then I think there's people that it switches a place on in their brain that gives them something they crave and they can't find otherwise and they can become addicted to it. And I think that's the same with foods and alcohols and, and many behaviors. I think there's people that can become addicted to danger, you know, and not just be, you know, there's there's, there's thrill junkies. I, I years ago I used to be one, but I mean to the addictive nature where your kid wants you to spend one freaking day on a weekend playing t-ball with him or something, but no, you got to go out and ride a motorcycle at 180 miles an hour, doing a wheelie down the highway instead of being home. See, that that's when I think the behavior has become so compulsive that it's taking you away from what you're really supposed to be doing. And again, I don't I don't I don't think it matters what the behavior is. And I think in every instance of this addictive behavior, 
you can point to a whole group of people that can engage in the behavior and basically live normal functional lives and they can do it and then they can stop doing it for months at a time and then come back and do it again. Whatever it is. Thrill seeking, smoking dope, looking at porn, whatever. And then there's people that as long as they allow themselves the opportunity, cannot control it. And then they fail to be what they can be. And I think if you find yourself in that position with anything, you need to break the addiction. And I think that the biggest reason people don't is they don't believe that they're worth it. You know, people always say, well, I'm going to do it for my son, I'm going to do it for my daughter, I'm going to do it for my wife, I'm going to do it for my husband, I'm going to do it for... If that gives you a little bit of a lift in the beginning, fine, but in the end, you have to do it for yourself. Every tough thing in life has to be important enough to you, and you have to be important enough in it to get it done. And if you won't do it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're never going to successfully do it for somebody else. Because in the end, it's you that makes the decision, and therefore you have to do it for you. I know that sounds oversimplified, but it's what a lifetime of of witnessing people behave in very positive and very negative ways has taught me. I, I've never known a person who has successfully broken an addiction without at least in being in part because they decided that they were worthy of, of doing so, that they were important enough to do so, that they mattered. Even when they say, well, in the end I did it for my son or I did it for my daughter, or, I did it for whatever, but it was so that you could be there for them. Therefore, it was for you. And I think the biggest reason that people engage in addictive behaviors is they don't have enough appreciation for themselves. I guess I'm having a Dr. Phil moment for you here at the end, but again, guys, I answer the questions you guys send in that happen to hit me in a certain way, and, and this one did, uh, and many of the others did today. But I think that in the end, it's also because we fail to think. And because we fail to think, we feel helpless, so therefore we grab onto whatever make us, makes us feel better. We've become a nation of sloths and sheep and addicts. We, we really have. We, somebody posted a video today of a lady like on a rascal scooter that was clearly overweight and that's why she was in it. And behind her was the deck of a, of a lawnmower that had been attached to the rascal scooter while another fat lady stood on that And both of them were going across the street and neither one of them walking. I guess at least one was standing up. And somebody posted that picture and said, what is the, first, what is the one word that comes to your mind when you, when you see this picture? And I said, America! And if it was allowed to have two words, I would have put, yeah. This is what we've become. And we've become it because we don't value ourselves, we don't value each other, we don't believe what we do matters, and we're scared all the time. One of my favorite quotes ever was said on, on this show, not too long ago, by Jeff Lawton. He said, it's boring being scared. And most of the things that I've said today upset you, that upset you today, if it did, it's because of fear. Fear and anger at other people whose lives don't really affect your own. And living in fear, boring. In fact, it's boring as shit. So don't do it. That's what lives to addict, leads to addictive behavior, hateful behaviors. 
It's what leads to compulsive behaviors. It leads to blaming others. It leads to failure to accept our own responsibilities. And it leads mostly, in the end, to a feeling of helplessness. And one cannot have personal liberty and feel helpless at the same time. One must feel empowered. One must even look at some of the things in life and say, I can't change that, but this is what I can do. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you